Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, again, welcome to you and thanks for joining us at First Alliance Church at home, at wherever you're at in the city or in the world or in your journey of faith. We're so glad you're with us today. My name's Andrew. I'm one of the interim co-lead pastors here and uh, we are going to get into God's word this morning as we continue our series uh, through uh, the book of Acts as we've been tracking uh, with what happened after Jesus died and rose, what happened to the Jesus movement? What was the sequel? And so Acts is really volume two of Luke's gospel. In these last couple of weeks, we've been first considering the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples that uh, the Spirit would uh, immerse their lives and fill their lives with God's presence before he ascended. And then he told them that they would receive power from on high. And this week we are looking at the result of the infilling and empowering work of the Spirit in our lives. Uh, What does it lead to? What is the outflow of God's work in our life through His Spirit? So please have a Bible with you open as we get back into Acts chapter 1. We're reading verses 1 to 8. And then we're also going to be reading in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 29 to 36. So Acts chapter 1 verses one to eight, and I I invite you to give ear because what we're about to read is God's word. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then just a page over in chapter 2, beginning in verse 29. Peter is giving a sermon to the people in Jerusalem and he says, brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, 
and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I do ask that you would come upon us, that you would take these words which you inspired Luke to write and cause them to land in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits, that you would illumine us to their meaning and their significance for us this day, that we might glorify you, that we might be transformed into the image of Jesus. Holy Spirit, come and do this. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. A couple years ago, the research firm Barna put out a report entitled Reviving Evangelism. It found that more and more practicing Christians today feel conflicted about the matter of evangelism. 40% of millennial Christians, it found. Uh, So that's those age 25 to 40. 47% of millennial Christians said that they believe it's wrong to share your faith with someone of a different faith in the hopes that they will adopt your faith. For Gen X, it was 27% who said that was wrong. Boomers, 19%, and elders, 20%. We don't even have the data on Gen Z, but I'm sure it's something similar or even greater than what we see among millennials. Now, this is really surprising because what the report also found was that around 96% of all Christians of all ages believe that being a witness to Jesus is part of what it means to be a Christian. They believe that that's part of their faith. And they also believe that the best thing that could ever happen to a person is that they would come to know Jesus. So most Christians believe that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is that people could know Jesus, but many of us think it's wrong to share our faith in the hopes that people will come to know him. So yeah, I'd say we feel a bit conflicted about evangelism. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to unpack what is evangelism? What does it mean to be a witness to Jesus? And what are our obstacles? And I hope that through this journey together, we can clear away some of our obstacles so that we can engage in evangelism faithfully and meaningfully in our cultural moment. So, evangelism, where does that come from? Well, the mandate to be witnesses to Jesus and to share his good news comes straight from his own lips. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, the very last thing Jesus does before he ascends, after his resurrection, is he commissions his disciples to spread the word and to be his witnesses. And the last thing he says, that's like an important thing, right? Like we need to pay attention. 
It's so clear that Jesus intends for his disciples to keep on doing the work that he had been doing, announcing the presence and reign of God's kingdom and all its dazzling implications for the world and for our lives. Evangelism and witness are part and parcel of what Jesus wants for us too today. So let's unpack this word evangelize. That's a, that's a big Christian word, especially if you're new to the faith. You're like, I, I know I'm supposed to know what that means, but I don't really know. Well, here it is. The word evangelize comes from the Greek word euangelion. Now, I want you to say that, and husbands and wives, hold yourselves accountable that you're actually saying that. Euangelion. Say it back to me. Euangelion. This is the Greek word for gospel. It simply means good news, and you can hear the word evangel in there. Euangelion gives us the words evangel or evangelism or evangelize. It simply means gospel. And so uh, to evangelize is to like gospelize. (laughs) Now, in the Roman world, the word euangelion, the word gospel was used to talk about the announcement of the good news of the reign of a new king. This was a word that denoted the announcement of the reign of a new king. So when a new Caesar came into power, a gospel was sent out throughout the whole Roman Empire. Messengers would go and announce the good news that Claudius or Augustus or whoever it was, was now the rightful king. It was like a social media campaign blast to the entire Roman Empire to announce the reign of the king. Now, this word was then picked up by the Jesus movement for its message about the good news of Jesus, that there's a new king, that Jesus isn't dead, that he was raised from the dead and he was enthroned as not just king of the Roman Empire, not just king of Jerusalem, but king of the universe. That's what Evangelize means. That's what evangel or gospel means. Now, what is a witness? A a witness is someone who has firsthand knowledge of something and, and they tell other people about it, right? On its most basic level, that's what it means to be a witness. So think about a law trial. Witnesses are called upon to share what they saw or heard about the given event in question. And Jesus is telling his disciples, this is the role you're gonna have in the world, You've seen me, you've known me, you've encountered me, you know that I'm alive and that God's eternal purposes are being fulfilled for the world. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're gonna be empowered to bear witness. You're gonna be empowered to share the good news, to go out into the world, announcing the reign of the king. And that's what they do. We read a bit from Peter's sermon. And the thing that the Spirit empowers him to bear witness to, specifically in this sermon and over and over again in the book of Acts, is the fact that Jesus was raised and the fact that he's been enthroned as king, right? We we read in Acts 2, God has raised this Jesus to life. That's the resurrection. And we are witnesses of it. And then in verse 36, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah, Lord and anointed King. Evangelism and bearing witness is simply sharing the good news that Jesus is alive and Jesus is King. 
That's the good news. Jesus has been enthroned as king, and friends, let me tell you, this is the best news the world could possibly hear. Because what we see of Jesus is that he's so good. He's so loving. He's so gracious. He's so truthful. He's so full of justice. And that if the reign of this Jesus actually were diffused throughout the world, oh my goodness, (laughs) the world would be such a better place. That's the kingdom. And so Jesus has come. His kingdom is here, but it's not yet fully here. It's here in mustard seed form and it's spreading, but he's going to come again to bring his kingdom in its fullness. That's the news that the world needs to hear because in the world, uh, in Jesus' day, before Jesus' day and in our day, uh, people are blind. People are deaf. I was deaf. I was blind before I met Jesus. We all were. And we desperately need others to show us who God is, to bear witness And that's the role of the church and of Christians to announce the good news of the true and rightful king. It's for all of us. I love how missiologist and church planner Alan Hirsch put it. He said, there's no such thing as an unsent Christian. There's no such thing as an unsent Christian who does not participate in the eternal purposes of God in and through the church. This is for all of us. Now, this doesn't mean, if if you grew up in in the church, this doesn't mean that we're all sent in the classical missionary type way that we're going to dress all in khakis and have a safari hat and go to the furthest reaches of the world. Uh, It does mean, though, that we are sent into wherever we are to bear witness to the love and good news of Jesus. That we are all missionaries, in a sense, And that's the bottom line for Jesus. He says, you will be my witnesses. We are going to become sharers in that apostolic message that Jesus is alive and Jesus is king and and he's coming again. Now, I want us to consider some of our obstacles because there are many. There are major obstacles to evangelism these days that we really need to reckon with if we are going to witness to Jesus in our cultural moment. So first, I want us to consider some inward obstacles, some obstacles that aren't so much out there in society, but are more in our own lives and in our own hearts. There are many we could talk about. We could talk about fear. (laughs) I mean, fear uh, governs so much of our day-to-day life if, if we let it go unchecked. And every human fears being rejected. Every human fears being labeled an outcast. And, and so many of us see evangelism as a sure way to get dropped by our friends. Fear is huge. We could also talk about hurry and busyness. How our lives have become so frantic and cluttered such that there's, there's no room for even being with Jesus, let alone sharing him with others. I mean, our hurry and the busyness of our lives really sets evangelism aside as something that we just don't have time for. And so we'll leave it to others. We'll leave it to the paid evangelists. Those are real obstacles, our fear and our hurry. But I want us to focus on one 
that is not often talked about from this passage, but is really crucial. And that obstacle is our hostility, the hostility in our own hearts. A few years ago, I traveled to Bangladesh to help uh, lead worship at a leadership retreat that one of our ministry partners was facilitating for his national team. It was an incredible time of getting into another culture, of seeing all these incredible projects happening in the capital city, and then of taking time away to be with these people who were serving Jesus, who had come from the furthest reaches of the world to serve Jesus in Bangladesh. And I remember having one conversation with a young man. He was from a Western nation, and he had just finished his first year there. And we were talking about his experience and it was really revealing and insightful to hear him open up. And he started to share about how hard he was finding it to actually love the people and culture of Bangladesh. Coming there, he didn't expect that that would be hard. He, he didn't expect that it would be hard to have affection for these people. But That's how it goes sometimes when you're immersed in a culture and in customs and in ways of doing life that are just so strange to you when you actually get close to people who are different. When you're out of your element in every way, it can turn you sour. And this was a guy who wanted to be there. He wanted to be there to love the people with the love of Jesus. And the biggest obstacle for him to be a witness was the hostility in his heart towards a people and a culture radically different from his own. I was so encouraged by his self-awareness and how God was bringing this to light and cleansing him and sanctifying him of this because it's crucial. Check out verse six in our passage. The apostles ask Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice Israel, the focus there. And what they're really asking is this, is Israel now going to be back on top? These were Israelites. So they're asking, Jesus, are we now finally going to be liberated from Rome? Are we finally going to go back to the glory days of King David and Solomon? Jesus, are you making Israel great again? The question shows a very understandable and human preference for their own people. And Jesus replies in verse seven, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set for his own authority. So, so, so don't worry about the timing, but, but here's what you do need to pay attention to. Verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea. So yes, in your own backyard, to your own people, within your own borders. But then he goes on. And I really want us to hear this. He goes on and he says, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Just pause and try to put yourself in the disciples' shoes. How would they have heard this? There was deep ethnic hostility between Israel and Samaria, like 500 years of warfare, Deep religious hatred. Jews viewed Samaritans as heretics and compromisers. Their religion was a syncretic mix of Judaism and Babylonian paganism. 
These were their enemies in every single way, religiously, politically, ethnically. They hated each other. Remember back in Luke 9, Jesus is traveling south through uh, Galilee to Jerusalem and he's going through Samaria and he wants to pass through a Samaritan village. And when the Samaritans don't let him through, this is how two of his disciples responded. Luke 9, verse 54. You can see it on your screen. It says that when the disciples James and John saw this, that they were not being allowed to pass through, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Destroy, obliterate, blow them up. They've got murder in their hearts. And then in the very next chapter, Jesus, the ever-perceptive teacher, knowing the medicine that his disciples need, Cast a Samaritan as the hero in the parable he tells about what it looks like to love our neighbor. I've become convinced that anytime Jesus talked about Samaritans with his disciples uh, or interacted with them, he's actually taking aim at the racism in their own hearts. Because they cannot be witnesses to the love of God with hatred, racism, and prejudice in their hearts. It's incompatible. It can't be done. But not only does he say you're going to be witnesses to Samaria, he says, and to the ends of the earth, which if you're a student of history, you would know that for Israel at that time pretty much meant all the surrounding nations that at one time or another had either enslaved, been at war with, or conquered Israel in the past, right? The Romans, the Greeks, the Persians, the Syrians, the Assyrians, the Arabs, the Egyptians. That's the ends of the earth for them in that day. And Jesus is saying that you're going to be my witnesses among your enemies. And that's what he's been preparing them for all along. Teaching them about the grace and forgiveness of God toward them so that they can also turn and forgive others and and to love their enemies. Racism, hostility, prejudice need to be dealt with in us. And this for us today also, I I see this happen so much between the generations, right? And, And some of us hearing the research from Barna, even in our own hearts said, oh, those millennials, they'll never get it straight. What's that showing? Hostility. Nothing is going to kill the church as much as hostility towards other races, other cultures, and other generations. And if we are still viewing people through the lens of our fear and hostility, it means that we're still blind and we've not allowed the gospel to open our eyes because the gospel says that you and I in the entire human race were God's enemies. And while we were his enemies... While we were still in rebellion against him, before we had done anything to commend ourselves to him, he sent his son to die for us. That's how much God has loved us. That's how he's treated us. It was my sin that held him on the cross and he died there for me. And if that's how God has treated us, how can we say we know him? How can we say we know the gospel? if there's hostility in our own hearts. He gave his life to bring 
his enemies into his family so that we might have a seat with him at the table in his kingdom. And so with this inward obstacle and all these inward obstacles, we really need the gospel to do its work in us first. We need the spirit to transform us, to announce the good news to us, and for it to work its way into every area of our life before we can go out into the urban tapestry that is Toronto and bear witness to Jesus. Those are some of our inward obstacles, but there are outward obstacles as well. Because, as so many of us know, we live in a culture that is deeply suspicious of people of faith, especially, it seems, of Christians, uh, and of organized religion in general. We're really anti-institutional. I mean, I know some of you who have become believers or come back to church recently in the past, you started to get involved in the life of the church, you started to join a small group, and you were just waiting for the moment when we would pull the string and it would get weird. And you were like, what, what's the catch? But there wasn't a catch. You see, there was just this mistrust that people could genuinely want to be here and show the grace and love of God without that catch. See, suspicion of organized religion dominates our society. There's also the, the rejection of objective and moral truth. And so whenever it comes to evangelism, whenever it comes to us sharing our faith with others, right out of the gate, there's a ton of baggage to deal with. But I want to talk about the outward obstacle of the church's sometimes contradictory witness to Jesus. I mean, we can't control the suspicions out there in culture, but we can control how we interact with our culture. We can control how we go about being witnesses to Jesus, and, and sometimes the church hasn't always done that well. Sometimes our witness has been contradictory. And by that I mean that the method of evangelism contradicted the gospel and the character of God. That the method of evangelism contradicted the gospel and the character of God. And, and I, I think that partly what the data from Barna is showing us is that uncompassionate forms of evangelism have left a bad taste in our mouth. Sadly, there have been times when it, it seems that Christians are treating human beings as projects rather than people. And it's hindered the gospel. So take this example. In uh, 2015, a 17-year-old in the U.S. who made $3 an hour was uh, working at the restaurant where he was a waiter, and somebody left him a $20 tip. Wow, he said, a $20 tip. I mean, that's awesome. I must have been really good waiting this table. It must have made his day. But uh, what he found was that when he went to take the $20 bill, it was folded on the table, and when he unfolded it, what it turned out to be was a Bible tract. It wasn't money at all. And there actually wasn't a tip left there. How do you think he felt? The words on the page were intended to announce good news to him. How would you feel? Yeah, pro probably not very good. <laughs> He was frustrated. He, he was put off. And then what happened is he took his frustration to Twitter. And the post that he posted on Twitter generated 5,000 likes, 5,000 retweets, and hundreds of comments. Can you see how much damage 
this careless attempt to share the gospel did to this young man and to the cause of Jesus on the world, in the world. Because there's a contradiction there. And you can see the contradiction between the medium and the method and the message, right? It's so true that what Marshall McLuhan observed applies in this case that the medium is the message, right? It didn't matter what was printed on the fake bill. That wasn't the message. The message was, I don't think your life is worth investing in. The message was, I don't think you're worth a tip. And this kind of evangelism is so tragic because God is not hokey. He's holy. God is not cheap. He's so generous. God isn't heartless. His heart of love beats for that waiter to know him. And I think that our conflictedness about evangelism today shows that we hunger, we, we long for, we desperately want to see and we want ourselves to live out a kind of evangelism where the medium does justice to the message, where the medium does justice to the love and beauty and truth and integrity and compassion of Jesus. Don't you long for that? We long for unembodied evangelism. And I think that's the way through our conflictedness and into faithful bearing witness to Jesus, inwardly and outwardly, that we, we begin to see evangelism not just as words to be said, but a way of life to be embodied. Our evangelism needs to be embodied so that what people hear from us is also seen by them in our lives, that we live it out, both in public and in private. The gospel first needs to have its way with us. God's love and grace to address our fears, to address our insecurities and our hostilities, to make us the kind of people who embody his love. This transformation starts with us. And it's when people see that our lives and our actions do not contradict but confirm the gospel, that's power. That's when there is powerful witness to Jesus, when there is no contradiction but confirmation in what they see in our uh, lives. Because what they see is that the gospel actually made a difference in their life. It changed their life, and so maybe it might change mine. See, all over the Bible, as much as there are things for God's people to do, the call is for them to be. That's been coming up for us over and over again these past few weeks. That before we're ever called to do something, we are called to be God's people, to be recipients of his spirit and his powerful presence in our lives, to be recipients of his love and grace for, as one of my favorite bands has said, a glass can only spill what it contains. In our text today, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Now, it might be tempting for us to hear this as a command, to do things, to, to do witnessing, but that's not what it says. 
The verb is not a command. The verb is a future promise. He promises. He says this is going to happen. That through the filling and empowering work of the Spirit, you will be my witnesses. He doesn't command them to do witnessing. He promises that they will be witnesses. Friends, this is such good news. Because you and I sometimes feel like, oh, I just need to do this and then I'll be faithful to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to do this in you. You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. And that might be a subtle distinction for you, but it's crucial. And it's what we see in the book of Acts. That the apostles and the disciples that the early church embodies what they proclaimed, that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. They didn't always do it perfectly, as we're going to see. But they made it their life's goal to embody the gospel. And it shaped every part of their life. It shaped what they did with their money. It shaped how they related to one another. It shaped how they interacted with others. It shaped what they did with their time. In the matter of the Spirit's work in our lives and power from on high and in being witnesses to the gospel, who we are is primary. And what we do flows from it. It flows from our being in Christ our being in the vine, our being filled with the Spirit. That's how embodied evangelism happens. Jesus changes us. I mean, we so often approach evangelism as I'm gonna go and I'm gonna change these people. Let's try and cut that out because only God can change others. And I'm convinced that the, the change that needs to happen for effective evangelism actually is with us. It's not about me changing others. It's about me allowing God to change me so that I reflect his love to others so that we will be his witnesses. This, my friends, this is the power we need today. It's the power of a renewed people giving their full allegiance to Jesus and living out and embodying the gospel. And there are so many ways to do this. So many ways to bear witness. So many ways to do evangelism. And we're actually going to talk about that more in our Q&R after the service. But what we need to know from here is that we are called to bear witness. But first called to be witnesses. To know and experience the love of Jesus for ourselves. To know with absolute certitude that Jesus was raised and Jesus is king and, and to share that with our city, with our neighbors, and with our world. Will you pray with me? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I thank you for your work among us today. Would you refine our hearts? Would your perfect love cast out our fear? Would your presence of peace and calm bring stillness to our hurry? Would your grace melt away our hatred of others? Reveal Christ to us in all his glory, enthroned as king of the universe. Help us, O oh God, to bear witness to him in a skeptical and hostile age. Transform us so that our lives may embody and radiate his good news. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, 
please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.